Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Desi, let's start off the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Noreen, Carrie, Brittany, Eldon, Mary, Rose, Shireen, Fiona, Sierra, Jenny, Chris, Rose, Slug, Sandy, Felicity, Helen, Tasha, Kate, Lacey, Lottie, Chuck, Frank, Cindy, Tammy, Susan, Stephanie, Jamine, Dave, Courtney, Julia, and Eric. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. And just so you know, there's tons of bonus content on the Patreon that you will have access to immediately upon subscribing. Yeah, you're not just paying for jack shit. <laughs> you actually get something when you sign up for our Patreon. And it's pretty good, I think. I don't know how... We haven't calculated the hours of content that, that's on there. But it's a I, lot. But it's a lot. It's so you'll like be busy. As many episodes as we've done on our here on Hollywood Crime Scene, there are just as many, if not more, on, on Patreon. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about today's main episode. This week, we're going to be talking about someone who is a personal idol of mine and has been for many years, and that is Gladys Bentley. Now, Gladys Bentley is a drag icon from the Harlem Renaissance, and not enough media is really out there about her. I think um, I've seen more media in the past few years, like articles written about her, I would say, than I have in the past, which is great. But we don't have any movies about Gladys. There's only one YouTube video of her performing. And believe me, I've searched for years to find some of her performances from back in the 30s. And no luck. But this episode was a long time coming. Uh, I hope you enjoy it because this is someone who's inspired me, probably was the inspiration for me when I started performing drag, when I started doing drag, was Gladys Bentley. So without further ado, this is her story. First, let me tell you some of my sources. Uh, one of the books that I read was called Bull Daggers, Pansies, and Chocolate Babies by James F. Wilson. It's a really interesting dive into queer culture during the Harlem Renaissance, Another was Gladys's own words herself from 1952, her article in Ebony Magazine called I Am a Woman Again. And I also got a lot of interesting information from a dissertation from the University of South Carolina called If It Be Sin, written by someone named Maura Mahoney Church. Cool. So those are some of my sources, as well as old newspapers, as always. Gladys Bentley was born August 12, 1907 in Philadelphia to George Bentley and Mary Moat. 
According to a piece Gladys wrote that appeared in Ebony magazine in 1952, Mary prayed for a boy and she believed that girls were, quote, fated for trouble. Gladys said that the first six months of her life, her mother refused to touch her or nurse her and that it was her grandmother who assumed the role of her mother at that time. Gladys felt from an early age that she was just born different. When Gladys was nine, she began dressing in her brother's clothing and she would wear them to school. Now, this obviously made her the subject of ridicule, but Gladys just felt more comfortable wearing suits than dresses and she had from a very young age. She also felt that her body, which she describes as large and stocky, separated her from the rest of the children at school. She was a very tall woman. She was very uh, large. Just from an early age, she felt there were all of these things about her presence that was different from the other kids. It, and it wasn't that Gladys wanted to play with the boys rather than the girls. She actually said that she recoiled from all men in her life, including her own father. And rather than play with the kids her own age at recess, she preferred to hang out with her teacher, helping to arrange the classroom and clean the blackboards. She even recalls her teacher letting her brush her hair. In her Ebony essay, she says this, quote, In class, I sat for hours watching her and wondering why I was so attracted to her. At night, I dreamed of her. I didn't understand the meaning of those dreams until later. Now, of course, Gladys's parents took her to several doctors as a child to figure out what's wrong with her. She's not acting like, you know, the stereotypical girl. girl that She doesn't want to wear dresses. She doesn't want to play with the kids her age. And, of course, you know, the doctor. There's nothing wrong with Gladys. I don't know what kind of weird thing the doctor probably said to her back then. Yeah. Who knows? This is, what, the 19-teens? Yeah. They probably we we've talked about weird medical prescriptions yeah. <laughs> on this show before. Who knows what advice they gave her? But in 1923, 16-year-old Gladys left home for New York City. She arrived in Harlem, both in the physical and spiritual sense. At this time, the Harlem Renaissance was in full swing. And now, Desi, I just want to make a note and to all of our listeners, this is by no means an exhaustive look into the Harlem Renaissance because there's frankly so much to talk about. I will go into a a tiny bit about it, but in the future we are going to be probably doing more episodes involving the Harlem Renaissance. There are a lot of other entertainers that could be full episodes, so just letting you guys know. But I will go into a little bit of the history, specifically about the queer history of the Harlem Renaissance. So she arrives in in Harlem in 1923, and Gladys, like many young black people who moved to Harlem, were met with this celebration of black culture. Harlem was one of the major destinations during the Great Migration when millions of African Americans fled the South during the Jim Crow era. The neighborhood was home to a vast array of black-owned businesses, black-owned newspapers, and was home to an explosion of poetry, literature, art, and music. The plays and the musical reviews put on in Harlem challenged white America's ideas of what it meant to be black in America, where in other parts of the country, black people were performing in minstrel shows or outright barred from performing altogether. Harlem was a place for black Americans to put on their own shows on their own terms and tell their own stories. In Eric Garber's 1988 essay for Outlook magazine, he says of Harlem during this time, it was, quote, a feeling of hope and progress were in the air. 
But at the same time, Harlem was also a destination for white tourists from below 110th Street to patronize the Cotton Club and other nightclubs that really catered to white people's desires to experience Harlem and black culture in general for a night. It was like this exotic destination for white people from downtown, and then they could go back home Mm -hmm. to where they lived. Um, this is in quote from Langston Hughes. He spoke about this phenomenon that was, that was happening. He said, quote, white people began to come into Harlem in droves for several years. They packed the expensive cotton club on Lenox Avenue, but I was never there because the cotton club was a Jim Crow club for gangsters and moneyed whites. End quote. Langston Hughes noted that the white people really only treated the black entertainers with a modicum of respect and they didn't treat the black Club goers, right, and the regu- fellow club go- just goers, yeah. people mm-hmm. in general. It was like, oh, they were the white people who the tourists who came. Right. They were respectful of like you know Duke Ellington, yeah, performing, but not just regular old people. And while there was a degree of prosperity in Harlem. On the whole, black people were still heavily economically disenfranchised in the neighborhood. Rents were high and wages were considerably lower than they were for white Americans. Economic struggle in the area spawned the creation of rent parties, which were ticketed events to raise money for rent. Now, these were all-night ragers that served bootleg alcohol and birthed new music styles and dances. Desi. Did you know that it was at these rent parties where the Lindy Hop was invented? I did know that. You did? Yeah, I did. I did not know that, but it does not surprise me. Yeah, it makes sense when you have any... Well, like, if you were around during the swing era, like, I think I learned some history just from that period, even though I wasn't really active in it. I like the music. So many rent parties also offered gambling, drugs, and paid sex. And it was at these rent parties where Gladys began entertaining partygoers with her piano playing and singing. Gladys was known for her raw talent as well as her provocative lyrics. She would put a spin on old songs by changing the lyrics to be overtly sexual. Ooh. <laughs> a girl after our own heart. Isn't that right, Desi? Yes. That's something both of us did as children. Absolutely. Now, this is incredibly iconic. Gladys did a mashup of the song Sweet Georgia Brown and My Alice Blue Gown, but she changed the lyrics. Like, she mashed up those two songs and then made the lyrics filthy. Nice. And I'm (laughs) going to read you the lyrics. This is uh, an ode to anal sex. Ooh. My ears perked up. (laughs) The lyrics were, quote, And he said, dearie, please turn me around. And then he shoved that big thing up my brown. He tore it. I bore it. Lord, how I adored it. My sweet little Alice blue gown. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, now I'll never think of sweet Georgia Brown the same. Uh, Ever. (laughs) Not that I hear that song often. (laughs) You don't? (laughs) Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Gladys's signature look was men's clothing and short, slicked-back hair. Her performances exuded masculine swagger, and she was known to flirt with women in the audience from the stage. She was just unapologetically herself, and people loved her for it. Yeah. And they loved that... She was so overtly sexual and so talented. Like, she was all these things. She was truly this dynamic performer. And she killed on the piano as well. At this time in New York, there was a growing queer subculture. And Harlem specifically seemed to be a place that queer artists and entertainers could exist more freely than other places. That's not to say that there weren't still vice raids happening and speakeasies and rent parties. But Harlem was actually known for being less policed. Probably because the neighborhood's most popular nightclubs catered to wealthy white people, and they wanted this wild experience, wild night on the town. So it was like, here's where we go to get good bootleg liquor and a wild party. So cops weren't raiding places like the Cotton Club or... And the Cotton Club specifically was like a very, like, you know, catered to a lot of wealthy white people. And with the attitude, while the attitudes of queer people in Harlem may have seemed overall more friendly than the rest of the city, of course, there was still plenty of religious Harlem residents who were anti-queer, anti-sex work, and anti-gambling. But it was actually Harlem's Hamilton Lodge that was the site of the country's earliest known drag ball. The drag balls at Hamilton Lodge dated back to the 1870s. Can you imagine? Yeah. I want to know what they were wearing. Do we, this, I feel like this is familiar. We touched on this in the Mae West, right? She sort of got involved in that scene too a bit. She did. Mae West did frequent the Cotton Club as well. She was, she did go to Harlem a lot. And this was during, like, during what was known as the pansy craze of the the 1920s and the 1930s, the Hamilton Lodge was host to these really extravagant, glamorous drag balls. And the newspapers often wrote about them. They reported about the wigs and the gender-bending costumes worn by its patrons. And like the more well-known New York ballroom scene of the 80s, these balls were primarily filled with black performers and black audience members. Right. Gladys soon began earning her living from playing the piano and secured a number of jobs playing at various nightclubs around Harlem. When a club called the Madhouse was looking to hire a pianist, Gladys was informed that they were looking for a man to fill the position. But Gladys said, there's no better time for them to start using a girl. The club owners were won over by her impressive talent and Gladys was hired. She started at $35 a week, but it wasn't long before she was pulling in $125 a week, not even including tips. Whoa. I looked that up. That was like $1,200 a that week. That seems like a lot because rent is $30 a month, just based on that, you'd think. That's a lot. It was $30 higher a month. Oh, 30 higher. Yeah. Okay. $30 higher. But yeah, I mean, but rent still wasn't. She was probably making, like she was making her rent in a week. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Now, Gladys Bentley was also headlining at Harry Hansberry's Clam House, which is one of my favorite <laughs> names for a gay club ever. Yeah, I love it. Like, if you tell me that there's a place called the Clam House, I'm there because I know I'm either going to get seafood or hot women. <laughs> Sadly, this place is no longer 
around anymore. But it's called The Clam House. This was an iconic queer speakeasy. And at this club, you could see various drag performances, and the audience was a mix of different races and sexualities. Gladys herself was an out lesbian, and she made no secret of her sexual and romantic affairs with women. In 1931, Gladys was said to have married a white woman in a civil ceremony, and that was the subject of much gossip. Unfortunately, I couldn't find anything in the papers about that. But, right. I mean, that's like said in all the various like works about Gladys is that, yeah, she married this white woman in a civil ceremony in New Jersey. So it wasn't like legal marriage. Yes. But it was definitely a like scandalous Ooh. thing. A 1929 review from the New York Daily News said of Gladys, quote, that Gladys just sits at the piano and shouts and shouts. She plays and sings until you'd think she'd drop from exhaustion. And just when you believe she had, she is tired, she gets up and dances all over the place. So that was the kind of act she was putting on as well. This was a highly energetic act. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that a lot of the these reviews would often fat shame Gladys because she was a large woman. They would be like, it's a miracle. Such a large, rotund woman can oh. dance for hours. Well, you said she was tall. Like, how tall was she? I don't know how many okay. inches. But she's, I mean, I'll show you. You'll see pictures okay. of her. But she was a large woman. She weighed like 250 pounds, but anywhere between 250 pounds to 400 pounds during her career. Okay. Um, but yeah, that was something I noted that a lot of reviews, they would always mention like her, her figure, like she was buxom. She was rotund. Right. But at the same time they were blown away. She has all this energy. She's dancing around (laughs) the stage as if that's not something that's possible. Yeah. Though Gladys employed a lot of comedy and bodiness in her act, she also played songs that could move an audience to tears. In 1928, Gladys got a record deal and recorded her first album. Unfortunately, her dirty song parodies were omitted due to copyright laws and most likely public standards of decency. (laughs) Like, I don't think you could release a record with (laughs) anal sex on it. Unless you're Little Richard. (laughs) But that's... um, Right... Yeah. Well, he was a big star, though, right? He was a big star, and that was years later, maybe? Yeah. Oh, and it I was also know. very uh Well, Tootie Fruity. <laughs> Tootie, nobody, that's not, like, overtly about anal sex. I, what did I do where I almost, oh, I wrote something. It was for something I wrote, and I researched the lyrics to Tootie Fruity. And maybe they're not all in the song, but some of them are very overt. Really? Yes. Because the only ones I ever think of is Tutti Frutti, Ah Rudy. No, there's more. (laughs) No, some of them are when you see, when I was reading them, I was like, shit. I'm like, and I feel like some of them got cut in like the radio release version. But it's like when you're reading, you're like, this is about anal sex. Right. And like the wop, bop, 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 the bop, bam, blue, whatever. I can't do it. Yeah. That's like when he like gets in, like... (laughs) Oh, that's what that is? Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, I got in. Woo, womp up. <laughs> I always imagine the womp bomb, aluma, womp bam, boom was when it goes in you. That's what you say. Oh. When the I, dick goes in your butt. I can't remember. I There's like a lot of writing on it. No, I'm saying me personally. Oh, that's what you would do. That's what I would do. Is <laughs> I, if a... If a Dick suddenly entered there, I'd be like, a womp bomb, aluma, a womp bam, boom. I mean, I'm sure the men love it. <laughs> That's my signature move, Desi. That's my signature no, move. No, but if you see the lyrics to the song, you're you're uh, definitely like, this is about anal sex. Okay, I'm going to have a revisit of that. Uh, so I, I don't know the song well enough like 
but I don't know if they cut out certain lyrics for certain recordings, but the right. original one he performed is quite obvious. Can we just sidebar here? <laughs> Rest in peace, little Richard. He's so funny. When he died, there were so many funny clips going around that are just unbelievable. That was like a when people talk about like what are celebrity deaths that hit you. That was one that hit me because he's just, hilarious. I thought he was fabulous. Like I wanted to be little Richard when I was a little kid. I like wanted to be friends with him. Like oh, I thought he was the. I know. I thought he was greatest. so fucking funny, and he just never took shit, and he always like smacked people down just with his sat. You know, like his words, just like whatever clap back. He was yeah, like the yeah. early clap back plus his um, outfits yeah yeah he had the best He's outfits. amazing yeah we love little richard uh rest in peace so yes unfortunately though gladys did not have her anal sex anthem <laughs> on her 1928 release it's wild to hear how much people even back then loved it but couldn't admit it publicly right and i don't feel like I mean, it's like a little bit better nowadays, but I do feel like that's still a thing. Like people love raunchy humor or like dirty stuff, but then they have to act like, like I always, like, I'm sure you have this too, where people are like, I can't retweet this, but it's so funny. And it's just like, well, why not? (laughs) We live in a very puritanical society. Yeah. It's crazy. Now this song does feature eight blues tracks that she wrote and she plays the piano on. There's also uh, a guitar player that accompanies some of the songs. You can listen to this on Spotify. I love her music. It's great. Uh, Mm. So go check it out. The songs on this record also depict very heterosexual themes and her lesbian identity is largely absent here. Where it was safe for Gladys to openly flirt with women on the stage and sing the praises of anal sex, she probably would have had a hard time having this be acceptable for a broader audience with the release of a record. Yeah. The 1929 stock market crash signaled the beginning of the end of the Harlem Renaissance, and the Madhouse and the Clam House would be closed by the early 30s. And by 1933, Gladys was... On the rise, she was actually making enough money to move into a nice apartment on Park Avenue. And at this time, Gladys's signature look was her iconic white tuxedo and top hat. And at this time, she performed with a chorus of eight very effeminate male backup dancers. Mm. Love that. Yeah. Gladys's star was rising, like I just said, and also was the demand for queer performances was rising in general in New York, and she found home in the bigger nightclubs and theaters on Broadway. The audiences that Gladys performed for now were primarily white and wealthy. She had a number of celebrity fans, but the increased exposure to the public led to many people who were outraged by her scandalous performances and suggestive song lyrics. Eventually, after receiving so many complaints about her lewd and indecent show, police shut down the venue that she was headlining, which was the King's Terrace, and she went back to Harlem. Because basically it was like... That was like where she could get away with it. Yeah, that's where she could do her own thing. Now... (laughs) Here's a review from Gladys's show at the Lafayette Theater in Harlem when she went back to Harlem to perform. Uh, This fucker called Gladys a large and ungainly woman, if I may say so, who cuts her hair and dresses in tuxedos and calls herself Gladys Bentley. I'll bet her group of six refer to her as a gorgeous man is supposed to be the headline attraction at the Lafayette this week. 
And she refers to her six boys as fellows and then apologizes to them for doing so. As a matter of fact, if these boys were put into dresses, they would be indistinguishable from the Corines. I personally could not enjoy their part of the show as I had a burning desire to rush out and get an ambulance backed up against the stage door to take them all to Bellevue for the alienists to work on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That guy needs to get fucked. What a bore. What a loser. <laughs> this is like the most exciting show to come to New York City. Yeah. And this guy, he's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say what he is. I can't even say. He's just so, that type is just so annoying and it still exists. It's just like, Ugh, it's you know, like, they're just like, they have those little round glasses and they're bald. <laughs> and they look like a fucking big toe. <laughs> After the end of Prohibition in 1933, the following year saw the creation of the State Liquor Authority in New York. Mm. Now, because of the new liquor laws, queer nightclubs could now be targeted as unruly and have their liquor licenses revoked. So, ironically, it was after Prohibition ended that these queer clubs were in trouble of getting shut down. Because now, like... Cops had a reason to go after them, like, oh, this is an unruly club, meaning it was a gay club. So that was like a a scare that was going around. A lot of queer performers, they left downtown New York to go back to Harlem to perform without the same kind of scrutiny, because in Harlem, still, it was a little different. For the next three years, Gladys headlined at the Umbangi Club in Harlem, which was a hot spot for queer entertainment. When the Umbangi Club closed in 1937, Gladys performed at the Apollo before leaving New York City altogether. The change in American sentiment around queer culture and black entertainment shifted dramatically during this time. The drag balls at Hamilton Lodge, they shut down in 1939 after more widespread conservative ideals set in and society deemed queer people as threats to American values rather than harmless novelties, which is what they were concerned to the straight people before. Like, oh, aren't they silly? But now, suddenly in this new era... It was more subversive. It was very subversive, and not only that, it was a threat. Yeah. It was like, this is not what we stand for as Americans. Very uptight losers. Okay. I stand Making for it. these calls. I stand <laughs> for it too. I love it. Uh, the same could also be said for black entertainers in general who had lost their value to white America. Langston Hughes actually said that black entertainers, artists, and writers were no longer in vogue at this time. In 1938, Gladys performed in Pittsburgh and St. Louis before making her way to to Los Angeles, where she sought to make it in Hollywood. She moved in with her mother, who lived there. Gladys told the press that she had a film development with Warner Brothers based off her own career. When she arrived in L.A., Gladys performed at various clubs in Hollywood, like the Mermaid Club on Sunset. And in 1940, the L.A. Times reported that one of the clubs Gladys performed at, which was called Joaquin's El Rancho, right here on Vine. Ooh. It's a Chipotle now. <laughs> I looked it up. I had to look it up. Well, I wanted to see if they had a menu, first of, course. of all. And then I was like, what's the address Oh, of this I know place? where that Chipotle is. Yeah, it's that fucking Chipotle. What a tragedy. <laughs> Seriously. Because this place was probably cool. Yeah. So this nightclub, Joaquin's El Rancho on Vine was ordered by the police 
to get a special permit for Gladys to perform in pants. So insane to me. She couldn't wear pants. (laughs) That's just so wild to me. Can you believe that? No. Like, I mean, I know that I know, like, that's a thing. Yeah. But I can't believe it. It's it's true. It's like, obviously, I know it. I remember it with, like, Catherine Hepburn and other people who wore pants, and it was, like, a scandal. It's insane. It's just it's a just skirt wild. with an extra couple seams. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> if, if anything, it's covering up your pussy more. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't get why. It's Because wild. it's un-American, Desi. That's okay. why. Okay. Now, if they didn't get this permit, the club was subject to lose their liquor license. Like I said before, it's now a Chipotle. Yeah. See see what you did, guys? <laughs> <laughs> so over the next five years, Gladys also performed at San Francisco's legendary lesbian bar, Mona's 440 Club. Mona's first opened in 1934 on Union Street before moving to 440 Broadway Street in 1939. And this was the first openly lesbian bar in the city. You've heard of Mona's before, right? Yes. The female staff wore men's suits and tuxedos, and it was host to drag king performances. The club's tagline was, where girls will be boys. (laughs) I love seeing some of the old pictures from this era of like the group of girls, the waitresses in their tuxes. It's just sad that every old bar and club and restaurant was ever closed. They should all still be here. (laughs) I know. It makes me sound like how, how is Mona's closed? It's an institution. We don't have any good places to go now. (laughs) Like seriously. Yeah. Gladys returned to New York in 1944 to perform at Tondaleos, and in 1945, she headlined again at the Apollo. She returned to Los Angeles in 1946. She continued to perform at clubs around the city, and she had a run at this club in the Valley called the Dollhouse, which was advertised as the naughtiest show in town. Nice. Sounds cool. I like the Dollhouse. That's a good club name. It is a good club name. Sure, that doesn't exist anymore. No way. Van Nuys Boulevard. I think that's where it was. I'm pretty sure it was on Van Nuys Boulevard. It had to be the coolest thing in Van Nuys. Yeah. God. Gladys continued to record music in the 40s, and in 1945, she released five songs with Excelsior Records. She also released a few Christmas songs later on in the 50s. But Gladys's career was on the decline. She no longer had the same level of fame that she did back in the 30s or like respect from a big audience. This was also due in part to the McCarthy era of the late 40s and 50s, when being openly queer was not only cause for disdain, but it was also seen as a literal threat to America. Did she ever do any movies? No. So she got a contract and then nothing happened? She was in development. I see. Yeah. So who knows what that means? Yeah. I mean, I just, that's what I gather. She had a meeting with Warner Brothers. Okay. Um, But like I said at the top of the show... This woman has been largely lost to history. Yeah. And she was so, she was a pioneer in so many ways. And she was, anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, So at the same time that this country was going through a red scare, it was also in the midst of a lavender scare, which, you know, coincided with the red scare. But this was basically a national panic that queer people were a threat to national security and homosexual activity was seen as deviant and therefore linked to communism. Sure. Obviously. (laughs) Everything just, anything I don't like goes together. (laughs) 
<laughs> that stuff never makes sense to me. Like it's so fucking stupid. This is a quote that I'd never heard before from McCarthy that he said, and it's quote. If you want to be against McCarthy, boys, you've got to be either a communist or a cocksucker. I mean, <laughs> why not both? Also, his like right hand man is a cocksucker. McCarthy's, yeah, Ray Cohn. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. It's it, I know everyone knows this, and it's just the most infuriating thing that will always infuriate me. That his friend was gay. No, I don't care that he's gay, but that he he like fucking went after people like him and it still happens today. Of course. It's just such an infuriating thing to me. He's like one of the most evil people in American history. Yeah, he fucking sucks ass. Yeah. By the early 1950s, Gladys began dressing in more stereotypical feminine styles, trading her signature tuxedo and close-cropped hair for dresses and skirts. She grew her hair long and wore pearl necklaces. And it is speculated that this sudden drastic change in appearance was really to protect herself and her career at a time when America was so openly hostile to queer people. Is this when she wrote her article, I'm a woman now? Yes. Okay. And we're going to talk about that right now. Okay. And in 1952, her essay, I am a woman again, was published in Ebony magazine. In the article, Gladys proclaims that she is cured of her lesbianism oh. and, and sinful lifestyle. She explains that she has been taking estrogen to combat her desires. The article reads as an explanation, but also an apology for spending most of her life not conforming to these heteronormative gender roles. Uh -huh. She says, quote, I have violated the accepted code of morals that our world observes, but yet the world has tramped to the, to the doors of the places where I performed to applaud my piano playing and song styling. These people came to acclaim me as a performer, yet bitterly condemn my personal way of living. But even though they knew me as a male impersonator, they could still appreciate my artistry as a performer. The article, I've read it, it's very sad yeah um because she does go into like her early life and her days at the height of her career you know during the harlem renaissance when and when she was just starting out and it's like you can tell she's looking back on these things fondly but the time she's living in the environment she's in is so scary for a person like her yes that she's clearly i mean it's been widely speculated like this was she was doing this putting this out for her career to save her career and to and to protect herself in general from being attacked this was a hostile time in general for uh, a black woman let alone a black queer woman right so i mean it's no surprise that it came this article came out in 1952 at the you know when this was all coming to right. a head i now, like that she went so far though with pearls oh my god <laughs> Desi, like she had to go to the extra. She step. did. She did. She wear. She's like now wearing the most matronly looking dresses. She's wearing little hats. Oh my the, god! The pearl necklaces, the little small high she's heels. She's like a little church. She's like a church mom. Yeah. I mean, she's like really going. She's really going above and beyond to sell this. Like I'm wholesome. I'm American. Yeah. I'm not a dyke anymore. Uh, she goes on to say, quote, today I'm a woman again and no longer have to rationalize that I was born that way. Because, yeah. you know, she probably had come to the conclusion before, oh, I'm born this way. I'm a butch lesbian. Yeah. But sadly, this is not 
where it ended up. Gladys also talked about her short-lived marriage to a man who was a sailor named Don who she met in Hollywood. In the article, she describes how it took her a very long time to accept his romantic and physical advances. I mean, I wonder why. <laughs> like, she's really talking about how she had to convince herself to kiss this guy in this article. Yeah. This is a gay woman writing and this. And this. this is not, like, shy or, like, I no. was sweet. At first, we just were opposites. No. <laughs> Well, Gladys was not a shy woman. Yeah. Gladys was very comfortable in her sexuality. Right. I mean... She didn't want Don. <laughs> clearly. And I don't know, Don, sailor named Don, maybe he was gay too. Who knows what was going on in this situation? So she's talking about how it took her so long to accept his advances. And after a long period of friendship, she realized that she trusted this man and she kissed him. And from what I can tell in this article... I mean, it really doesn't seem like she was sexually attracted to this man. And she ended up going to a doctor before they got married to like be like, hey, can you help with my weight? But can you also help me be attracted to my husband? How do I get wet for him? (laughs) The doctor prescribed her estrogen. The article displays pictures, like I mentioned before, of Gladys acting out her newfound role as a domestic goddess. There's images of her making a bed, washing dishes, and fawning over a strand of pearls. I mean, it is the most cliche, (laughs) Betty Crocker, homemaker Was there no... Is there no specific event that happened, or this transition just happens seemingly out of nowhere... I mean, like I yeah, said before, it's just clear this was a culmination of yeah. the the climate in the country. Is she like religious now too? Yes. Okay. Now she's also found God. So maybe that was an aspect to it. Uh, that, I don't think yeah. that was the impetus. I think that she found God while she was going through this transformation yeah. in her life. Um, like I said before, people who have written about Gladys have... pretty much everyone agrees that this was probably due to the political climate in the country that forced her into hiding, so to speak. She credits her newfound dedication to religion as having cured her of her former sins, and she also told the magazine that she was in the process of writing an autobiography, which would also serve as a guide for people who had been like her and sinned and wanted to have a more godly life. Is she still performing? Yes. Okay. She's still performing. Gladys married again at, like, shortly after this article came out to uh, a man named J.T. Gibson. He was 35 years old, and he was a theater columnist. Okay. He died the same year that they got married, though, of internal bleeding. It what? was a, Look, <laughs> I don't know how he died, but it said he died while parking a car. Of internal hemorrhaging. That's weird. It's like he had an accident and didn't get it checked out or something. Right. Um, and how has her act changed at this point? Uh, like, I know she's like whatever she is now. Well, she's not doing the, you know... The anal songs. She's not doing the anal song. She's not doing the flirting with women from the audience. Right. She's so doing, she's just doing her more blues She's just doing her blues yeah. songs. I okay. mean, because she has a... Gladys had like, wrote like 300 songs or yeah. something. She has okay. a huge catalog of and songs. And is it still as boisterous and energetic? It's very energetic, but... Uh-huh. 
you know, especially when she sits down at the piano, and we're going to talk about this performance she did later in her life in a minute, but, you know, the energy is still there. It's yeah. just a different, it's a different because she's not wearing the tux anymore. And she's, she's not sexual. She's not, yeah, she's not exploring her sexuality on yeah. stage. Now, uh, so this husband that she marries, he dies, and then she married a third time to a 28-year-old cook named Charles Roberts, but they were divorced five months later, and he would go on to tell like a gossip column that he denied having ever married her. Oh, and she's like, what, in her 50s now? Yes. Okay. In 1953, an article in Jet Magazine called Can Science Eliminate the Third Sex cited Gladys Bentley as an example in which hormone injections can cure lesbianism and the desire to break gender roles. The following year, Gladys was mentioned again in another Jet article titled Women Who Pass for Men. So these are articles she's getting mentioned in where it's like, see, this woman was cured gay and she's yeah. cured now and oh these injections that the doctor so that was a treatment that was regularly used to treat lesbianism you know i'm not sure but it I was i mean if it's an article about well it, there was an yeah. article that it was saying look at cure these estrogen hormone injections gladys got cured her lesbianism <laughs> which we know is wrong right i'm just trying to wrap my mind around like like you want to fuck women <laughs> It's just like so fucked up. Science, even just scientifically, it doesn't make sense at all. Like, what was what were right. they thinking? That's correct, yeah. Desi. Because <laughs> Desi, Desi's having a light bulb moment. That's correct, Desi. You can't cure homosexuality. I'm not trying to say. Obviously, I know that, but I'm. I sometimes I like to think of like what they thought it was doing. No, in their own work. No. <laughs> These are stupid, stupid doctors from the 50s. Oh, my God. It's They're, just unbelievable. I mean, this is like this dumbest logic ever. Yeah. It's fucking wrong. Even just like to even have the thought that you can cure someone right. of this is wrong. Yeah. In 1958, Gladys appeared on Groucho Marx's show, You Bet Your Life, where she performed a lively rendition of Billie Holiday's Them Their Eyes at the Piano. Now, this is is in fact the only video I have ever seen of Gladys. Oh. And this is, you can find it on YouTube. And it's an amazing performance. She is in her long, you know, church mom, marmy dress. And, um, but she's adorable and she's amazing. She's so talented. You won't believe how fast she's playing this piano while singing. And her voice still sounds amazing. It's sad that there's no video of her old school performing. I know. Like, I mean, I would yeah. love to see that. I've, yeah. I Look, believe me, I've scoured the internet over the past 10 years trying to find very old footage of Gladys Bentley, and I've never found it. Yeah. I don't think it exists. Yeah. Uh, it might not because who would who was filming in these clubs yeah. back in the day with yeah. all of this subversive shit going on? Who, who knows? I couldn't even find... I mean, I couldn't even find just like other drag performers from that yeah. era. I couldn't do it. So who knows? But she is, she does a great performance. And sadly, in 1960, two years later, she died at the age of 52 of pneumonia. But of course, her legacy lives on as an important figure in American queer history. Oh my God. So she just got pneumonia and that's yeah. so awful. Yeah. And that was the end. That's so sad. I know. <laughs> I know. And then 
How did you find out about her? Well, I'd known about her for like, I guess, 10 years now. Um, I I have no idea how I discovered her, probably just reading about old queer history. And she popped up on some, I I think she popped up on some website that was like, it looked like it was fucking GeoCities. Right. It wasn't like she popped up on the Huffington Post or something. Is there any sort of renaissance for her in the past 10 or 20 years though? I believe in the past, in the past few years, I have seen more places talk about Gladys. Yeah. I don't think she's like a widely known figure of just mainstream pop culture. Right. I think maybe older gay people know who she is. Older queer people know who she is. I don't know. Like she's just not as famous as I think she should be. Yeah. Cause she was so amazing. Well, she had crossover appeal. So it wasn't like she was just performing for a queer audience, which is still obviously great, but she seemed like she was in the mainstream too for a bit. She had a a lot of celebrity fans, but she was just another uh, performer who was lost to history for a multitude of reasons. It's also like, it's sad to think how many other people like her exist that were lost to history. Absolutely. And I think when I was reading this book, the... um, the Bulldaggers book, sorry, it has like a, a long title, but I really liked it. Uh, Bulldaggers, Pansies, and Chocolate Babies by James F. Wilson. Really interesting. It made me want to do uh, other episodes on some of these yeah. figures throughout queer history during this time. Um, and just figures during the Harlem Renaissance, people during the Harlem Renaissance. I know their stories are very interesting. Um, and obviously, there's so much to dig into there. Yeah. So much to talk about. So, yeah, that is Gladys Bentley. Cool. I hope you liked it. I didn't know anything about her. Oh, I mean, I know cool. who she was, but yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting period. I do think we discussed it um, on the Mae West episode. We did. Like that, that, um, that era. That era, the pansy balls. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. And also one thing I know uh, that while I was researching this that made me want to do like, oh, we should do a whole episode on like, you know, the queer bars that were raided in Los Angeles pre-Stonewall. Oh, right. The Black Cat. Yeah. And yeah. the donut shop. Yeah. Do you know about the donut shop? I think I have a vague memory of hearing Downtown. something that. Yeah. 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 So, there, I mean, we, we've touched on the, the gay bar raids in our Scotty Bowers episode. Right. But that is a whole episode in and of itself. Yeah. And no, especially we'll do an episode on the black cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Okay, yeah. Looking forward to the pics. Oh, my God. I have so many good pictures. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. Bye. Bye. <laughs>